Let me let me pray over Kyle before he starts here. Father, thank you for giving this man the courage to get up here and speak. I just pray that his words will be your your words. And I know that uh, getting up here and speaking weighs heavy on his heart. And and just I just pray that you give him confidence and boldness to preach your word. In your name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> thank you. Can you hear me? All right. <laughs> All right. First off, I'd like to say that it's an honor to be up here speaking today, and I'd like to also thank the elders for this opportunity and to all of you for coming. I feel like there's a few things I need to say before we start. First is that what I'm going to be speaking on today is something that I believe the Holy Spirit put on my heart a few weeks ago, and that is the topic of pain and suffering. But I want you all to know that I am not oblivious to what has been going on here. And I have been praying for many of you and lifting you up. And I am not immune to the pain that we have been going through. Last week, one of my friends from college called and one of my good friends that I lived with for three years, uh, watching a movie with his wife and kids, stood up and just passed out right in the living room and wound up passing away. So it's been very trying times for all of us. But on the topic of pain and suffering, there's many ways that it seems like preachers generally try to address this. They try to speak on the hows, the whens, the whys, or sometimes they'll bring it up to catch your attention and then bypass it to talk about something else. But the hows, the hows all vary. It can be from loss, illness, injury, uh, spiritual attack and the winds, of course, the winds vary as well. None of us ever go through the same thing in the same season of life. That's why it's vital for us all to be there for each other. But the wise, the wise are something that generally stand out and that the Bible addresses quite a bit. And it's something that I'd like to speak on a little bit. One of the wise is God's will, which we cannot know. Oftentimes we know this, but sometimes it can be hard to accept. And when we look at the life of Job, Job was never told why he suffered, to the best of our knowledge. Now for us, looking from the outside in, we can see that. And we know what was going on. But it wasn't punishment either, because God declared Job righteous. Trials and trying times can help us in perseverance. They can build our strength. They can help us lean on each other even more. And we live in a fallen world. We know that our flesh is not perfect. And we know that trying times will come to us. But even though we know these things to be true, even as we're going through them, at times our human nature can bleed through into them. And the pain can begin to change us and do things to us that normally would not have occurred. An example of this would be we can use the pain that we have gone through and use it to almost take a moral ground over our brother that hurt us, to hang on to the anger that is caused within our hearts to where we excuse ourselves from forgiving them. We can use it to hold our brothers down, almost as if we have this attitude of they cause it themselves, this is their fault, and we don't come beside them and lift them up. In fact, this happens in the book of Job again. In chapter 19, Job finally cries out to his friends, Why are you tormenting me and crushing me with your words? 
And yet a third effect that pain can have on us is pain can harden our hearts towards our God. It can cause us to come before him in prayer without humility in our heart, almost defiant as if we want him or we expect him to give us an answer as to what is happening and why. And this is something that as we continue our Christian walk, we must pay attention to ourselves. We must fight this within ourselves. We must also be looking for this in our brothers and our sisters, making sure that there is still humility in their hearts. We need to come beside them and walk with them. We need to lift them up, and we cannot push people away when they come to us, offering a helping hand. And oftentimes, when we read the book of Job, we look at Job's three friends. And oftentimes we're pretty harsh on them for the way they treated Job and the way they spoke of God. In fact, in Job chapter 42, 7 through 9, God actually rebukes them for the way that they spoke of him. But Soren Kierkegaard points out their original intent, their original intent and the original desire why they came to Job is something that we should all uh, learn from. So let's turn with me, if you will, to Job chapter 2. We're going to read verses 11 through 13. And this is at the beginning of Job's suffering when his friends show up. Verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads towards the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. Now, when you read this and you see the actions of his friends, there's a few things that we should pick up on in this. First, they came with Job. They came to Job in his time of need. They left their lives behind and they came to him because he needed them. And when they saw him, they experienced sadness. They wept for his sake. They mourned with him in his time of grief. For seven days and seven nights, they simply sat with him without saying a word. They were simply there for their brother. And eventually, after being there with him for time, in the beginning of chapter 3, Job finally breaks his silence and he begins to speak about the pain that is on his heart and the trials and tribulations that he's going through. And yet sometimes, even if our friends are there, our church body, our family, there are times when we can still feel alone, even when we're comforted. And this is something that is unique about the Bible that I love when reading it, is that it is not dishonest. It does not ignore the thoughts and emotions that we have. Oftentimes it addresses them head on. So what I'd like to do, if you would turn with me to Psalm 22, We're going to read the first 21 verses of that. And oftentimes when we pray, no matter what the situation is, but especially in trying times, there's three things that we generally bring up. The situation, 
how we feel and the action that we want God to do, the request that we have before him. Now, oftentimes in this culture, and maybe it's just in my own life, what is going on and how I feel, I generally breeze by because it's like I'm praying. He knows I'm hurting, obviously, because I'm here. So there's not really a need to dwell on those, but I need him to know the action that I want done. I need him to know this, how he can fix this. But as you read through the Psalms, as you read through prayers of lament and protest, you're going to see that the ancient Hebrew authors actually prayed in the exact opposite way. They assumed that all was in God's will and that the action that needed to be done would be. And so their request is a very minimal part of it. But what they mainly focused on was how they felt and the situation that was going on. They were very humble in the way that they were approaching God. So let's read this psalm here, and we'll talk about it a little more. Verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest, yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered, and you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I cannot count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword. My only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. Now, if you have ever gone through trying times and you feel this confusing sense of absence of God, almost as if he's not listening, then this is your prayer. This is what David is getting off his heart. Now, we have no idea what David is going through when he wrote this. And yet we can understand the pain that he expresses in these first few verses. 
In fact, he even begins by telling God how he feels. Where are you? Are you paying attention to me? I am lower than a worm. What is going on? But the unique aspect of this prayer is that it is clearly relational. David is talking to his God, the God that brought him from his mother's room, the God that has been his God since the beginning. He is coming before him in all humility, expressing exactly how he feels to him. But also notice what we talked about initially before we read this. The first 18 verses, David is talking about the works that God has done in the past. He is speaking of the situation at hand, and he is speaking of how he feels. It is only in the last three that he makes his request known to God for what he wants. And we're going to read the second half of this. But before we read the second half, there is something that allows us to read the second half, that allows us to enter the temple with praise, and that is hope. Our hope is in Jesus Christ because our hope is Jesus Christ. That is something that I want us to focus on real quick. So if you will, you can either turn to Romans 8 or I can read it, whatever you want. We're going to read verses 18 and then 24 through 27. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 24. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he has already seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We have been saved in hope, and the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory of the future. There's something in human nature about as we go through life. Oftentimes when we're in times of good, we go through them complacently, almost as if we don't appreciate them. And then when we get in times of suffering, we become hyper-focused on the pain, so focused on the pain that it feels like it'll never end. In fact, in the book of Job, Job cries out to God, almost wishing that he had never been born because of the pain he's going through in this moment. And yet in doing so, he completely negates all the blessings that he had beforehand. His wedding day, watching his children reborn, memories as a child, he completely bypasses them to not go through this one moment. But Christ changes us. Christ gives us hope. Christ puts new wine into a new wineskin. He changes our countenance. Because he gives us hope when we are in moments of pain and trials, We are able to look past them to the future, whether in this life or in the next. He gives us hope. And we may get frustrated in moments of pain, and we may cry out to him without humility in our heart. But can you imagine 
not being able to cry out to anyone when you're going through these moments. Imagine not having the hope that knowing him gives us. So now let's return back to Psalm 22. We'll go through the last part here, 22 through 31. And notice the shift as we go from a protest to a praise. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Nor has he hidden his face from him. When he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who hear. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive, posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. Now, clearly something happened in between the first half and the second half. And what is safe to assume is that in this case, David's prayer was answered, but he does something unique. He enters the temple with praise and he tells all those around him of the works that God has done in his life. And it makes us begin to think, when God works in our life, when he gets us through these times, do we bear witness of it to each other? Do we celebrate these times with each other? Because in order to celebrate them with your brother or your sisters, then you make the assumption that you brought them into the struggle with you in order that they could walk beside you to celebrate the victory with you. Struggling in trying times is difficult, but there's a unity factor to it. Oftentimes people that grow through hard times and struggle together come out on the other side so much stronger than what they entered. Now, oftentimes when we read this, The second half probably doesn't appeal to us in the way that the first half does because we can understand the emotional pull of the first half. In fact, when you read the Gospels, over 20 times Psalms 22 is referenced, especially when talking about Jesus on the cross. As Christ is hanging on the cross, one of the things he cries out is exactly how this begins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet theologian Tim Mackey states this. Jesus takes the suffering of this prayer upon himself. And this allows us to pray the first half with an anchor to hold on to for hope. That celebration and praise is still yet to come. Hope 
And the cross of Christ is what allows us to enter the temple with thanksgiving and praise. Kind of in conclusion here, I guess, to wrap this up. My hope for us is that as we move forward, we move forward together. We're not meant to endure pain and suffering alone. If we show the love of Christ and forgiveness to each other, lifting each other up in encouragement and prayer and coming before our God with a humble heart, then we will be fine in the days ahead. That is my prayer for this church. And I also pray that the Holy Spirit brings revival to Sycamore, that he renews our spirit and our walk with him, that he continues to help us cling to each other, to stand tall under the banner of Christ, to face the chaos in this world together, hand in hand, as brothers and sisters. So, that is what was laid on my heart, and I appreciate the opportunity to share it. And we'll pray real quick. Christ, I thank you for the opportunity to come to worship you and to read your word together, Lord. I pray that you continue to walk with us and guide us through the valley ahead. Help us to lean on each other. Help us to seek you in prayer with a humble heart. Help us to offer a helping hand to our brothers and sisters that are in need and to spot those who are in need and to offer it ourselves. I pray, God, that you continue to unite us, that you continue to remind us that we are all vessels of the Holy Spirit, that we are all your children. I praise your name, Lord, and ask that you continue to guide us in the days ahead in your love and peace. Amen.